0: Let me ask you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 101. And I do hope that uh, you plan to come this evening as uh, we will end this day as we have begun it in God's house with God's people, but in a very special way, uh, communing together and communing with Him uh, for our growth. Really consider that to be a priority, and uh, you will be glad that you did. It's It's a real means of growth. Psalm 101, attributed to David, says, I will sing of your love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praise. I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? I will walk in my house with blameless heart. I will set before my eyes no vile thing. The deeds of faithless men I hate. They will not cling to me. Men of perverse heart shall be far from me. I'll have nothing to do with evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor in secret, him I will put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, him will I not endure. My eyes will be on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He whose walk is blameless will minister to me. No one who practices deceit will dwell in my house. No one who speaks falsely will stand in my presence every morning. I'll put to silence all the wicked in the land. I'll cut off every evildoer from the city of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, we do ask now that in these moments, as we come to you, that you would enable us to submit our hearts to your spirit who teaches us your word which is truth we do ask even as we have sung earlier that you will pierce our hearts with this But you'll do that for healing as we are drawn all the more to you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We've got an inquirer's class coming up soon, and I hope for those of you that have uh, been worshiping with us and haven't joined the church or you just want to find out more about it, that you'll come to the, the class and find out more about what we believe, we talk about our uh, beliefs and our practices here. We want people to know our church before uh, they join. One of the things that I do in that class is to talk about the vows that are taken when one joins the church. And one of the vows is actually a question where you would say, I do. Do you promise to live a life that becometh a follower of Christ? Now, all of the vows, all vows that we take are by grace. And yet, think of the standard that you are affirming there. Promise to live a life that becometh that is becoming to, is fitting with, being a follower of the king of the universe. Who can say that? And what does it mean? How can one possibly affirm that? And if you do affirm it, you've got to say, okay, now what what am I affirming here? David is setting before us here a standard, and we know he had his issues. We know he had his failings. But he sets before us a standard for living. And how, how do we handle that? <clears throat> Can we possibly fulfill what he has said and even that vow. Now, I want to give you a caution before we go any further here. Because if I were, as your pastor, to go through this and teach what it says, which I will, and virtually to give you a list of things With the implication that if you just keep these, you'll be right with God. We could be in great danger of what the Pharisees did. Think about Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees. He said, for instance, in Matthew 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be. I used to have a a plastic coffee cup and it was white and every morning I would put black coffee in it and then when I was done, I would rinse it out, set it there to dry and the next morning at the church I'd do the same thing. Well, it wasn't long before that cup you know, if you saw me just walking around like this, uh, you'd say, oh, well, yeah, he's drinking a cup of coffee. If you saw the cup end, empty and looked inside, you'd go, oh, man. How can you drink out of that? And, that, you know, that's the picture that uh, Jesus has here. And he says, you know what? When, with your view of these things that these, these standards you have set up, you're keeping them on the outside, but on the inside. Well, look at the other illustration. Woe to you, teachers, verse 27 in Matthew 23, of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous But on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus did not and would not accept, even for a moment, that it was okay to do these things on the outside. And if you just did these things on the outside, so from everyone's perspective, you looked as though you were being obedient. He never accepted that that was sufficient. And he looked into the hearts of these Pharisees who paid such close attention to the outside and he said, you're rotten on the inside. And that makes you a hypocrite. So how do we keep from being hypocrites? And what's our perspective here? Well, let's take a look because I I think David... Begins, and we will see later where grace fits into all this. But David begins by showing us the right perspective for us to avoid that hypocrisy. It starts with a worship relationship with God. I will sing, verse 1, of your love and justice. To you, O oh Lord, I will sing If our incentive for a cleansed life is just to look clean for other people, it won't last. Now, it may last for a period of time. It may last even for years. But ultimately, it won't last if that's our incentive, is to look clean for other people. It's got to go deeper to who we are in Christ, to our very identity, to our core. That's what he was talking about with the Pharisees. That's that's where they were not dealing with their real issue. They were were good on the outside things, but it was their core where there wasn't a heart for God. And one evidence of that is the, the focus on worship. Now notice what he focuses on before he ever speaks of what his behavior will be. David doesn't start with behavior and say, okay, here's what you need to do, and then you're right with God. Scripture doesn't do that. Some churches do that. Do this, and then you're right with God. But the Scripture doesn't teach that. Instead, it goes deeper. In his worship, he starts with a recognition of God's attributes. I will sing of your love and justice. On Friday, I celebrated my third anniversary here of the day that I I started uh, as your senior pastor. Now... I know it's burned into your mind what my first series was, but let me remind you, for those of you that weren't here, my first series uh, was on the attributes of God. Not my first sermon, but the first full series I did on the attributes of God. The reason I did that, and I explained to you at the time, as you remember, uh, was that when I was in seminary, I had a, a professor who taught theology, Dr. John Sanderson, and he said, When you all get out there in the church, he knew knew young seminary guys so well. He knew what we'd want to do. We'd want to spout our theology. He said, don't start by using the Westminster Confession of Faith and preaching through that or anything like that. He said, instead, start by preaching the attributes of God because everything else you preach after that will be based upon those. And so when I've gone to a new calling, that's how I've begun. And I think he's exactly right. And that's what David here is focusing upon. Now look at the two attributes. This isn't all his attributes, but he he mentions two, love and justice. Now, many in our day like to talk about uh, God being a God of love. That, that's a pretty popular view. The other side of it isn't. But let me ask you this. Where do you find that he's a God of love? You don't watch the news and decide that God is a God of love. You don't look around at what's going on or see suffering and determine God is a God of love, the only place you can find that God is a God of love is in the Bible. It's on virtually every page. But on those same pages, in the same Bible, it teaches about God being a God of justice. In this case, In the same verse, he is a God of love and justice. So, what does this God of justice and of love expect of his people? David describes here the cleansed life, the characteristics of a a cleansed life. Uh, Now, all of of, of this being said that I've, I've just told you, uh, we've, again, got to be careful because if I were just to give you a list or if I were to say, okay, this is what it's talking about and, and here are the applications of it, so here are our church rules, then the problem would be that uh, we'd be in danger like the Pharisees of thinking, okay, well, I've, I've kept Dale's rules or I've kept St. Andrew's rules Or even I've kept God's rules, and so I'm okay. I'm okay when it comes to him. But let's look at what he says about this cleansed life. He first talks about a cleansed home. Verse 2, I'll be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? I'll walk in my house with blameless heart. Our families see us as we are. I have four children. They saw not uh, their senior pastor, but they grew up with a dad. A flawed dad. A dad who sins. Our family sees that part of us. And David, we know about his problems. We know that although he gives this wonderful standard here, that he he didn't keep it. But I'm convinced that's why, even in this exclamation here, he says, when will you come to me? You see, here's the standard. This is what we are to do. But immediately our hearts say, I can't seem to do it. When will will you come to me to give me strength for that which you call me to do and to be? Now he gives some practical things. Look at verse 3 and 4. He talks about separation from evil. I will set before my eyes no vile thing. The deeds of faithless men, I hate. They'll not cling to me. And then the second part of verse 4, I'll have nothing to do with evil. Now, I don't know how you can <coughs> read that without thinking about TV and movies and computers. <laughs> I mean, there, there are other ways as well. And yet, what we... Bring into our home and then into our eyes and brain and heart. There's got to be discernment. You know, it's, it's one thing, and, and I'm not pro-violence, but we know that when we see violence on TV or on a movie, that it's fake. You know, all things being equal, nobody's really getting hurt if the stump man is doing his job and so on. And yet, in that same movie or show, you might be a direct witness to real adultery. It's not fake. It's real. David says, I'm not going to put that in front of my eye. Now, there's times where your eyes fall on something that they don't belong. What do you do? When I was in Atlanta, one one morning I was uh, coming to the church early on a Sunday morning, and uh, it was along a main highway, and so often there was trash or bottles or stuff in our driveway, and I'd stop and I'd throw them in the car and then throw them away, and uh, one morning, there was some trash-looking stuff there in the driveway, and so I, I pulled up and I got out and I picked up a pornographic magazine right smack in the middle of the driveway of Covenant Presbyterian Church. Now, that wasn't sin. I didn't choose that. But then the choice came, Right? Then it was the choice. What are you going to do at that point? You know what Martin Luther said? He had a vivid uh, saying. He said, you can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. (laughs) Do you get what he's saying? I had to think about that one a long time, too it's it's like this no-vile thing. Sometimes you're just going to see things. And you can't help that. But it's what you do next, whether you dwell on it, whether you permit them to seep into your life. I was preaching at uh, a conference in Miskolc, uh, Hungary. And I had various teaching assignments and then one of the evenings that I was preaching, and they had different uh, speakers each night for the, the big program, and uh, one of the nights they gave me the subject, and they had told me a couple months before, we would like you to speak to these young Christian workers on sexual purity. Now, when I got there, I found out that was the hot potato that nobody, nobody wanted to speak on, And so that was my topic. And so I did speak from God's Word that night through translators in various languages. This was a group of young Christians from various parts of the world that were in that country, and they were going to fan out for an evangelistic thrust. They were being trained. And so I preached, and then uh, at the end I said if You know, if you're struggling with these issues that we have brought out from God's Word, I want to encourage you just to stay where you are, and someone will be by to counsel with you and to pray with you. And to all of our shock, there were dozens who remained in the room. More than we could handle. It took us a long time. But I will never forget going up to a man who was in his late 20s. And when I sat down by him, I said, You need prayer or some opening like that? And he said, I'm addicted to pornography. And he said, Not only that, I have just, in the last few weeks, decided that I don't have any business getting married because my whole view of that is so warped that I don't need to bring that into a home. Don't ever kid yourself that we're talking about people out there. It is rampant among God's people. And that's why God's word speaks to it. Very much related to that, he goes on and talks about separation from evil persons. Verse 4 Men of perverse heart shall be far from me. Whoever slanders his neighbor in secret, verse 5 Him will I put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a, a proud heart, him will I not endure. No one who practices deceit will dwell in my house. No one who speaks falsely will stand in my presence. Every morning I'll put to silence, verse 8, all the wicked in the land. I'll cut off every evildoer from the city of the Lord. Now, it's not that we can't speak with those that would fall into these categories. I mean, they, they need Christ, right? So it's, you know, in terms of the separation... What's it mean? Because here at St. Andrews, we encourage on Sundays our people to go out and be a part of the community and your work and your school and build relationships, ultimately in the name of Christ. And you you do need to ask the question, well, would, would Jesus be here where I am? out here in the community? More often than not, the answer would be, absolutely, he would be here. He might be criticized for being here, but he would be here. And so then you ask the next question, what would he be doing here, and how would he be influencing those that are around him? And that, often, is the difference. What difference does it make that he's here? And so what difference does it make that I am here? with these who need Christ. And then he talks about in verse 6, clinging to the faithful and the pious. My eyes will be on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He whose walk is blameless will minister to me. Those are God's people. And David is saying, he's giving a contrast. He's saying, okay, here are the evil ones the slanderers and all that. That's not where I'm going to get my counsel and my fellowship. I, you know, I may be among them, but not of them. But he said, it's the faithful ones in the land. They may dwell with me. See, that's the difference. It's one thing to be around. It's another to dwell with others. David knew how crucial God's people were in his life, David knew that though he had fallen and though he had failed and fallen into grievous sin, that God used his people, specifically Nathan, to come to him and to tell him the truth that God used then in his heart to bring him to repentance. David had not cut himself off from God's people, and God used that. And so here's what you've got to be cautioned of, all of us. If you find yourself, you know, yes, I, I'm, I'm with folks in the community, and so in fact, I'm starting to like the way they're counseling me more than I like what I'm hearing among God's people, you're in danger. Because they're going to tell you the natural way. They're not going to talk from a kingdom perspective. And so David emphasizes that. So what's it mean? Well, J.C. Ryle said, sound Protestant and evangelical doctrine is useless if it's not accompanied by a holy life not saying doctrine's useless. He says it's useless if it's not accompanied by a holy life. It's worse than useless. It does positive harm. It's despised by keen sighted and shrewd men of the world as an unreal and hollow thing, and it brings religion into contempt. He's saying that's what that kind of lifestyle does out there. So it's got to be a daily commitment. Verse 8, every morning... I will put to silence all the wicked of the land. I'll cut off every evildoer. It's an every morning, every day thing. We talk about preaching the gospel to ourselves daily. Not that you get saved every day, but we need the gospel every day in our life. So where's grace come in? Sounds like, Pastor, uh, that's all pretty legalistic. You ended up giving us a list after all. I'm telling you what God said here. Don't ever think that believing in God's grace lowers God's standard. Jesus didn't teach that. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey what I command Not you'll go on and and do whatever you want out there because of grace, you're under grace, don't worry about what I command. You will do. But that's where the grace comes in. He never separated love and obedience or grace and obedience. In fact, grace is our motivation. It's God's grace. The love of God in Christ on the cross that should be our greatest motivation. 17th century English minister Samuel Bolton said this There is nothing more powerful than love. Things impossible to others are easy to them that love. Love knows no difficulties. It's an affection that refuses to be put off by duties. Did you catch that? Love is not put off by duties or difficulties which come between it and the person loved. So we see how how much God loves us, and that is our incentive. It's not just out of fear. It's not out of a threat. All of our children were in competitive sports wrestling, cross country, baseball, football, volleyball, soccer, all of those sports. Now, in all those years, I'm not going to stand here and say there aren't some things that I might have regretted a little bit when I was on the sidelines and that I, I said, you know, that's a lot of games and so on. But, to my knowledge, I never tried to motivate them by threat or demand. I think what it would be like you had a wrestling match pin him stupid kids don't say stupid that's I'm using me that is a bad example don't say stupid or a cross-country run you lazy bum you think that would have helped their performance I'm convinced not only would that not have helped, it would have hurt their their ability to keep going. Instead, you got it. Keep it up. Pick off those runners one at a time. You know, whatever you could say in a positive sense. That's why grace and love are our motivation. God's grace also relates to our ability. Verse 2 says, I will be careful to lead a blameless life. And then right on the heels of that, when will you come to me? You see, that's the balance there. Our obedience, but Him giving us the ability to obey. I will do this. When will you come? I need you. And that's the balance. So where do we get grace? Well, in our Westminster Confession of Faith, there is a question about the ordinary means of grace. And it says they come especially from the Word of God and prayer and the sacraments. You have today, and you will in Sunday school, heard the Word of God to be strengthened. You have the ability to pray at any time and all time. Tonight, will you come? And be strengthened for the battle by being nourished by the Lord's Supper for His grace. Let's bow together.